You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 366 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, we used the last episode to start to set the stage for Jeb Stewart's arrival at Gettysburg on July 2nd, after the battle there had already started. When we left off last time, it was June 25th, 1863, and Stuart was just setting off on his controversial ride to Gettysburg, and we said that right out of the gate there were unexpected complications. On that first day, there was the unwelcome discovery that the Federal Second Corps, Winfield Scott Hancock's command, was on the move and marching along between Stuart and the crossing of the Potomac that he'd wanted to use to ford that river. Forced to yield the right-of-way to the large enemy force, Stuart had to backtrack. Since the Yankees were on the move and had made it impossible for him to follow the route he'd originally had in mind, Stuart decided to swing south around Hancock's Corps and continue with his ride. What that meant was that here, during the opening hours of the expedition, the timetable for his ride had already been thrown off, and although Jeb Stuart couldn't know it, it would never get back on schedule. In the interest of keeping the story moving along, we're just going to be hitting the highlights of Stuart's ride. However, if you want to dig deeper into the tale of Jeb Stuart's controversial journey to Gettysburg, there's always those 10 members episodes over on Patreon that you can check out. Anyway, the important thing to remember is that for over a week, for eight days, from June 25th until July 2nd, so far as Robert E. Lee was concerned, his cavalry chief, on whom he relied for information about enemy movements, was out of touch, and so Stuart might just as well have been on another planet for all the help he was to Lee during those eight critical days. When Stuart ran into Hancock's Second Corps directly astride his planned route to the Potomac, he was faced with two options. He could have called off his expedition and ridden back westward to maintain contact with Lee and the rest of the army, or he could ride around the large enemy force blocking his path. Not surprisingly, Stuart being Stuart, he decided to follow the more daring course of action taking his three brigades on a detour south and east before turning north toward the Potomac. In doing so, though, he put two mountain ranges and the entire Federal Army between himself and Lee's right flank. 
Having committed to his venture, Stuart rushed his troopers past Fairfax Courthouse and across the Potomac at Rouser's Ford, only a dozen or so miles upstream from Washington, and then on to Rockville, Maryland. There, the already weary Confederate horse soldiers saw an invigorating sight, a huge Federal wagon train packed with supplies. A rebel officer, still relishing the memory, later wrote, quote, The wagons were brand new, the mules fat and sleek, and the harness in use for the first time. Such a train we had never seen before and did not see again. The chase was on. The Federal Teamsters desperately turned their wagons and fled pell-mell back toward Washington. Stewart's men, howling in delight, rode them down. The take was astounding. 900 mules, 400 prisoners, and 125 wagons full of food and supplies for the rebel troopers and fodder for their horses. Stewart then made a fateful decision to take along the captured wagons. Ultimately, rather than a blessing, they instead proved to be a curse, an albatross around his neck. When Stuart and his men needed to be riding north as quickly as possible to link back up with the rest of the Confederate army, moving and protecting the mule-drawn wagons became a terrible liability and slowed the rebel cavalry's pace considerably. Leaving Rockville on June 28th, the Confederate horsemen continued northward into Pennsylvania, cutting telegraph lines, tearing up railroad tracks, and fighting several fierce little battles with bands of Federal cavalry. In one clash near Hanover, Pennsylvania, Stuart would have been captured or killed by the enemy had he and his big mare, Virginia, not escaped by leaping a deep 15-foot-wide ditch but horse and rider sailed over the obstacle, as one Confederate officer recalled, with, quote, Stuart's fine figure sitting erect and firm in the saddle. Still, though, there appeared to be no way of turning westward without encountering large units of the Federal Army. Stuart's only option seemed to be to press on deeper into the Keystone State, to York or even distant Carlisle, hoping to link up with Yule's Corps. The exhausted rebel troopers slept in their saddles, many falling off and thudding onto dusty roads. Nearing York on June 30th, Stuart discovered that Jubal Early's division of Yule's Corps had been there, but had left hurriedly. Stuart pushed his men relentlessly onward, seeking to find the friendly Confederate infantry and join back up with Lee. Arriving near Carlisle at last on July 1st, Stuart's advance guard found that the town wasn't in Confederate hands, but was held by federal militia under Brigadier General William Baldy Smith, a former corps commander in the Army of the Potomac. When the feisty Baldy Smith refused Stuart's call to surrender, the Confederates shelled the town and set fire to Carlisle's barracks. Since the town was not only the county seat of Cumberland County, but also a supply and training center for the Federal Army. This was all completely useless and a waste of time, since Stuart's overriding priority at this point ought to have been pressing on to find Lee's army, 
not engaging in a battle of wills with Baldy Smith. Late that night, Stewart finally got the news that a battle had started that day at Gettysburg, some 28 miles away, and that Lee wanted him to bring his three brigades of cavalry with all possible haste. And so, now at last, knowing the location of Lee's army, Jeb Stewart, at 1 a.m. on the morning of July 2nd, set off heading south on the final leg of his controversial ride to Gettysburg. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Many of you folks who are listening to the podcast are no doubt familiar with the dramatic, very dramatic, very dramatic scene in the movie Gettysburg, where Robert E. Lee, late on the night of July 2nd, in fact, we're told in the film that it's after midnight, so it's actually very early on July 3rd, but it's the scene, of course, where Robert E. Lee meets with Jeb Stewart, and Lee's anger at his cavalry commander's absence the past week boils over, and he scolds Stewart rather severely. There at his headquarters that night, a tired Lee gives Stuart quite a tongue-lashing as Stuart stands there looking like a bewildered, hurt little boy. So yes, very dramatic. However, while such a scene may make for sensational drama in a movie, there's little actual historical evidence to indicate such a dressing down of Stuart really happened. Jeb Stewart left Carlisle sometime around 1 a.m. on the morning of July 2nd, accompanied by only a handful of staff officers and aides, leaving Fitz Lee's, Wade Hampton's, and John Chambliss's weary columns to follow him to Gettysburg. Everyone was bone-tired, and the men accompanying Stewart that night passed mile after mile asleep in the saddle until it's likely only Stuart, whose stamina and endurance were legendary, pressed on, without escort of any kind, and arrived at Gettysburg alone. Stuart probably reported personally to Lee sometime between noon and 1 p.m. on the afternoon of July 2nd. However, it's not even certain such a meeting actually took place. And although many writers have claimed that it not only happened, but that it resulted in Lee's sharp rebuke of Stuart, there are no eyewitness accounts, and neither man wrote about it. 
In fact, there are no surviving accounts of that confrontation other than a statement by Major Henry McClellan of Stewart's staff, who wasn't present, but who said Stewart later confided to him that the meeting with Lee was, quote, painful beyond description, end quote. In any case, however things played out between the two, Lee, in the middle of fighting a battle at Gettysburg, was almost certainly relieved to see the safe return of his cavalry commander, who was one of his favorite subordinates, and whose three brigades of veteran horsemen were about to rejoin the army after being missing in action for over a week. Stewart's veteran troopers began arriving at the battlefield toward evening on July 2nd. Chambliss's and Fitz Lee's brigades got to Gettysburg first, while Wade Hampton's brigade, bringing up the rear, was delayed by a clash with Federal cavalry at Hunterstown, about five and a half miles away, and they halted for the night south of that village. Chambliss's and Fitz Lee's troopers set up camp north of the York Pike, to the rear of the position of Ewell's Corps on the Confederate left. All of Stewart's men and their mounts were exhausted. Fitz Lee, in a letter to his sister, said, quote, We were tired and sore from so much and continuous marching, almost broken down from want of rest. Colonel Richard L.T. Beale, commanding the 9th Virginia Cavalry, reported to Stewart on the night of July 2nd that, quote, the utmost verge of endurance by men and horses had been reached. End quote. A sergeant in the Second Virginia Cavalry said that at dawn on July third, found our command in a poor condition to undergo the hardship of a battle with credit either to themselves or their country. During the night, Stuart received orders from Lee for the Confederate cavalry to operate beyond Ewell's flank. Lee assigned Brigadier General Albert Jenkins' brigade of Virginia horsemen to Stuart. Jenkins himself had been knocked out by a shell fragment while conducting a reconnaissance on July 2nd, and Colonel Milton Ferguson now led the brigade. Detachments for guard duty had reduced Ferguson's command from two regiments to a battalion and eight companies. So, in all, with those men and the three brigades of Hampton, Fitzlee, and Chambliss, Stewart counted slightly more than 5,000 officers and troopers present for duty on July 3rd, along with two batteries of horse artillery and two guns from Ewell's Corps. On July 3rd, Stewart planned to move east on the York Road to a position where his horsemen could protect the left flank and rear of Ewell's Corps. In his book, Protecting the Flank at Gettysburg, Eric Wittenberg writes, quote, Some have speculated that Stewart's move toward the federal right flank was coordinated with the picket Pettigrew Trimble charge against Cemetery Ridge that afternoon, but neither Stewart's nor Lee's reports support that conclusion. End quote. Actually, there are quite a few writers who state as fact that on July 3rd, Pickett's charge and the action at East Cavalry Field were all part of the grand plan that Robert E. Lee cooked up 
to hit the Federals with a coordinated one-two punch, front and rear, with infantry and cavalry on the third day of the battle. As Wittenberg says, though, neither Stuart's nor Lee's reports support this conclusion, which is a nice way of saying that such claims are pure poppycock, nonsense, and foolishness. Stuart's report stated, quote, During the day's operations, I held such a position as not only to render Yule's left entirely secure, but commanded a view of the routes leading to the enemy's rear. Had the enemy's main body been dislodged, as was confidently hoped and expected, I was in precisely the right position to discover it and improve the opportunity. Wittenberg concludes that, according to Stewart's own report, there was clearly no specific attempt to coordinate an attack by the Confederate cavalry with Pickett's charge. Anything Stewart was to do that day was not connected directly to Pickett's charge, or was meant to take place in the aftermath of the assault, when the Federals would be retreating from the battlefield. The diary entry of an officer in Jenkins' brigade supports this conclusion, as it states, quote, At four o'clock in the morning, we mounted horses and, through fields and on by-roads, advanced to our extreme left, attempting to flank the enemy's army and to cut off its way of retreat. On July 3rd, Lee only intended for Stuart to cover Ewell's left and possibly be in position to move to impede the Federals' retreat, should such an event occur that day. However, it's clear from what actually happened on July 3rd that Stuart started the day with an idea that revolved around either creating an opportunity or taking advantage of an opportunity to capture a key spot in the enemy's rear, the Hanover and Low Dutch Road intersection. In pursuing such a course, he probably believed that he'd have an excellent chance to strike a blow and perhaps cripple one of the Federal Cavalry Divisions. On the previous day, July 2nd, Stuart had observed the action at Brinkerhoff's Ridge, here out beyond Yule's left, as the Federal horsemen of David Gregg's division fought and pinned down the Confederate infantry of the Stonewall Brigade, preventing those rebel foot soldiers from joining Yule's attack on Culp's Hill that evening. On July 2nd, Stuart had observed the lay of the land here in this sector, and probably believed that on the 3rd, in the course of protecting Ewell's left, he had a prime opportunity to hurt Gregg's command, capture a key spot in the Federal rear, and, once in possession of the Hanover and Low Dutch Road intersection, be in a position to hinder any enemy retreat from Gettysburg, should the Confederate infantry break the Yankees' lines, as Lee was seeking to do that day. At least, based on what occurred on July 3rd, that seems to have been Jeb Stewart's thinking, and he made his plans and dispositions for that day accordingly. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Protecting the Flank at Gettysburg, the Battles for Brinkerhoff's Ridge and East Cavalry Field, 
July 2nd and 3rd, 1863, by Eric J. Wittenberg. The last time we were at Gettysburg, we took a late afternoon slash early evening to go out to East Cavalry Field. It was our first visit to that spot for both of us, and we're glad we went out there so that map in hand, we could get a better idea of what happened at that spot on July 3rd. I think the only other people we saw the whole time we were out there were a couple of farmers on tractors. So it's obviously not a heavily trafficked spot on the Gettysburg battlefield as far as visitors. It was kind of nice having a part of the battlefield all to ourselves as we went around orienting ourselves to landmarks and picturing what was happening there on that day so long ago. Anyway, that's a long way to get around to saying that if you are planning to spend some time at East Cavalry Field, there's no better way to prepare yourself than with Wittenberg's excellent book, Protecting the Flank at Gettysburg. He's devoted much of his adult life to the study of the mounted operations of the Gettysburg Campaign and has produced a fine study of these actions on July 2nd and 3rd. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Facebook page, Twitter feed, and Instagram account, as well as information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon and supporting the podcast in that way. We want to give a shout out and thank the newest members, Alex W., Karen P., Todd B., Mark S., John, and Michael K. Tom S., Jim M., Paul B., Danny H., Robert D., Logan H., and Peter B. And thanks to Victor N. and Robert C. for their donations. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.